Small Farm Nation is sponsored by Farmers Web, software for your farm. Farmers Web helps farms inform buyers of available product, handle orders, simplify customer interactions, and reduce the administrative load. So check them out at farmersweb.com. Entrepreneurs have been using crowdfunding to launch new businesses for years, but could you imagine crowdfunding a cow? Hey, it's Tim Young of SmallFarmNation.com. Today, I'm speaking with someone who launched a company that makes it convenient for consumers to buy craft meat direct from farmers using crowdfunding. Hey there, thanks for joining me again this week. I've got a fascinating episode as we examine one of the biggest problems consumers face when wanting to buy directly from farmers, and that's the problem of convenience, or it's inconvenient. It's a problem that we farmers face as well, getting our products to customers. So today I'm speaking with Joe Heitzberger, who's the co-founder and CEO of CrowdCal. Now, Joe's not a farmer, far from it. He's something of a serial entrepreneur, having started a number of tech companies. But a few years ago, he became enamored with the whole idea of buying meat directly from a farmer. Now, you're going to hear him tell the story in a few minutes, but it's a transformation that I and maybe many of you have gone through as well, as some of us have opted out of the rat race and rediscovered where food comes from. Now, Joe was a typical consumer who bought meat at the grocery store and gave little thought to where it came from or how one cut of meat could possibly differ from another. And that all changed when a co-worker of his bounced down the hallway of their Seattle offices exclaiming, I'm so excited, I'm so excited, I'm getting my own cow this Friday. And Joe couldn't imagine what it possibly meant to get a cow, especially in downtown Seattle. But when the co-worker described how much better the beef tasted from the cow he purchased and the relationship he had with the farmer, Joe was hooked and decided that he too had to get a cow. Now, for a lot of people, the story would end there. But when you give an idea like that to an entrepreneurial-minded person, it tends to become more than an idea. It becomes a business opportunity. So Joe and his partner, Ethan, launched CrowdCow in 2015. It's an interesting business model that's endeavoring to make it easier for farmers and consumers to come together and celebrate what CrowdCow calls craft meat. So let's find out what Joe means by that and listen into the story of how an innovative business is born as Joe and I discuss the story of CrowdCow. Joining me today is Joe Heitzberg, CEO and co-founder of CrowdCal. Now, if you're not familiar with CrowdCal, the company is on a mission to help people discover and access the highest quality craft meats and to bring people together. And what I think they mean by that, by bringing people together, is I think they mean farmers and consumers and families and friends. So basically, they're speaking our language, Small Farm Nation. Now, Joe has been a busy, busy, busy entrepreneur, having founded several businesses prior to CrowdCal. In the tech world, he started Snapvine, which he sold to White Pages. Then he started Media Piston, which he built and sold to Upwork. Then he co-founded Madrona Venture Labs, which was an in-house startup incubator. So, Joe, I'm out of breath. Welcome to Small Farm Nation. Thanks for having me, Tim. It's great to be here. Now, you and I haven't met, but we share a background in entrepreneurship. I mean, after running B2B marketing businesses for over 20 years, I walked away from corporate America and I started a pasture-based livestock farm, even though, you know, I had never farmed before. And a key reason I did that was I had become really 
frustrated and kind of disillusioned that I couldn't even describe to a child or to my mother what it was that I did in that B2B corporate world. I mean, the business world had become so dang complicated that I could, I found myself longing for something a bit more real and easily understood like farming. So I'm curious, I'm curious about you. What inspired you to transition from purely tech plays to bridging the gap between those who grow food and those who eat it? Yeah. Um, well, part of it was having a, a kid, you know, I've got a kid he was, uh, gosh, how old is he when we started the company? Four years old, I guess he's eight now. Um, right about that age where they kind of figure out how the world works and how it's fitting together. And it's not just, uh, you know, I fall down, I hurt, I cry, but it's a little more sophisticated than that. And they ask him questions about the world and, and you as a parent are trying to a set a good example with a work ethic and working on meaningful things. Uh, that they can relate to is part of how you do that Two, food, where your food comes from, why it's important to know where it comes from, why it's important to eat healthy, where your dollars go, who your dollars are supporting, having the connection back to the source of it, um, how that affects your body, your health, your future. It's part of my job as a parent. So mm. largely inspired by that is why kind of, I didn't see it as a difficult leap to make. Um, mm. And also because you know, as an entrepreneur, you're just a problem solver. You're, you're, you're identifying opportunities and problems and you're like, well, I can figure out how to solve it. And if I don't, I can get help. And, you know, along the way, it'll be a fun adventure and we're going to meet people and accomplish things. And step by step, we're going to build something meaningful to, to hopefully have an impact. And, and to the extent that that is working, you keep doing it. And in this realm of like, you know, Hey, everywhere I look, it's, it's working because I can demonstrate to my, my kid can help me taste test the different farms. You know, we're helping connect consumers to those farmers. We're giving those farmers a spotlight in the, in the world of, of commerce that they don't usually have, um, which feels really good on all fronts. So that's hmm. makes it really easy. Yeah. So, so that's interesting. So when we talk about entrepreneurship, I mean, uh, you, you know what it's like to, uh, to act on an idea, to have an idea, to act on an idea and start a business. A lot of people actually get stuck. They, they're kind of the ready aim, 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 aim people, and they never really act on an idea. So what, what's the story of CrowdCal? What was the idea? Was there a problem you identified that you wanted to solve, or did you have some sense of some uh, source of inspiration that you just acted on? Yeah, for sure. There was inspiration. We had a, um, a guy who I worked with, um, who named Brendan, you know, kind of, he'd worked for my co-founder, Ethan, uh, in a prior job. He, uh, technical guy, software engineer, you know, um, but he came to work one day. He was really excited because, um, and he, he was like really visibly excited. He's like, oh, I'm so excited. Why? Well, on Friday, I'm getting my cow. And I was like, what are you, <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, we're like downtown Seattle in a high rise getting your cow. What are you talking about? He's like, well, I'm getting the beef. Of a, of a whole animal, we buy our beef by buying an entire cow from a farm on Woodby Island. And he, he described the farmer, he had the name of the farmer, he visited him several times, he'd been doing this for years. And Woodby Island is one of these places, if you live in Seattle, that you would go on a three-day weekend to get away from it all and be in the countryside where it's beautiful, the air is clean, do a little kayaking out there, see some orcas, pick some blueberries, you know, it's just a beautiful place. Um, and, you know, getting your beef from there, that sounds pretty good. And, and he said, yeah, and the beef is just so incredibly delicious. You know, so he knew something about the farm. He knew the 
how the farmer cared for the animals and his family, his own family. He was doing it out of his own tradition. He had uh, raised this beef that tasted better. I'm like, wow, um, can I have some? And he's like, well, sorry, but you know, we, <laughs> we, I have this tradition where we get in my kitchen with four of my neighbors and we go round robin and everybody gets their piece. And at that point I was like, well, how much beef is it? And he's like, it's about 550 pounds of beef. <laughs> I go, well, I had no idea. It's just a complete, you know, newbie on this. And I, I said, wow, so you've got this beef. You're, what, you're driving a truck out there to go get it or something? Like, how do, you've got like a giant meat freezer and stuff? And he's like, yep. I'm like, wow, what what a pain. And uh, and you won't give me two steaks. I'm so, like, jealous here. Well, who is the farm? Can you introduce me? And he goes, well, I could, but they only slaughter once a year. So <laughs> I'm, I'm just like, are you killing me? I I, I built it up as so much better than what I, as a consumer, you know, have available to me, you know, cause I could just right now go to any grocery store in Seattle and I'm just going to hit the meat counter. And it's just kind of an intimidating place. Like the people behind, like you got all these different cuts and you're kind of embarrassed to ask questions about it. And there's the meat, these, these labels that don't really mean much like, I, like organic beef. What does it even mean? You know, if you ask what is level three at Whole Foods, a welfare, you know, guy behind the counter will turn white. Can't tell you, you know, and as I've gotten into this world now, many years into it, it turns out the guy behind the counter can't even tell you what country it came from. Right. Right. They right. Know. So, so, so you heard Brendan's story and Brendan's enthusiasm and, and plus yeah. not just enthusiasm, but it's also an element of scarcity. It's like, Hey, he's got something that you don't have and yeah. you really wanted that. But the first stumbling block that you encountered, whether or not you, um, you thought about this or not, uh, consciously, but the first stumbling block is, yeah, but I don't want to have a, an industrial freezer. I want what you have, but I want it on a smaller scale. Correct. We, we, you know, the light bulb moment was Ethan really saying, I, I took this to Ethan talking about Brendan, you know, and Ethan said, well, uh, yeah, I've known about this too. Um, and, but Nicole's a vegetarian, that's Ethan's wife. So I'm definitely never doing that. But, but Ethan said, there really should be a way that like, Imagine you're on your couch with your iPhone, just kind of scrolling through. You can view a video of the farm, you know, meet the farmer virtually, learn everything about them. And there'd be like a cow for sale, right? The original idea. There'd be like one cow for sale on a webpage and you could just buy five or 10 pounds of it. And you and your friends and just random strangers on the internet could all kind of crowdfund the cow, right? And uh, we were riffing on that idea, like crowdfund a cow. Like mm -hmm. what, if, what if 50 people bought a piece of a cow together and when all the shares were claimed, you know, the cow tips, which is funny. And then, you know, you become stakeholders in the cow, which is <laughs> hilarious, right? So that, right. that idea kind of went to this funny place where it's like, you can imagine that website with the video and you tip the cow, become a stakeholder. It's too fun to not do it, you know? Right. So we thought, I couldn't, you know, it was like the next day we're like, I can't keep... I can't stop thinking about that idea. It wasn't a business idea. It was a discussion around how difficult it must be to find a farm. You go to Google, you can't find them. They don't have websites that are any good. The information's limited, right? You got to, once you do find one, you know, they, they don't slaughter regularly. You, somebody drives a truck out there. You got to have a big freeze. All these problems and challenges. But, you know, if the other side of that is a healthier beef that's been raised better, tastes better, that you have a connection to the farmer you feel good about, you have a better mealtime experience, but there's all that friction. That's just an entrepreneurial problem to solve, right? And then right. the solution with like tip the cow, become a stakeholder is so fun. Like we got to do it, right? So we asked 
friends about, yeah, here's the idea, the elevator pitch, you know, for the idea. And every single one of them was like, nope, I'd never do that. I'm a vegetarian. Or, <laughs> or they were like, I'm totally down for that. I'll do it tomorrow, you know? And so we went to like, friends love you. They want you to succeed. So we went to a Starbucks cafe, like the nearest one on the spot after we both called a couple of friends, you know, 10 friends each. Went to a Starbucks cafe. We just went up to random strangers. We're like, excuse me, sir. Can I talk to you about beef? <laughs> I know that's weird, but uh, <laughs> we have this idea. And have you heard of this thing of like buying a whole cow? Like, okay, right. no, well, you can. But what if we made that easy? We just sort of talked about it like that. And people were like, again, they were like, nope, I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> or they were like, or they're like, yeah, uh, what's the URL? You know? I'm so down. Yeah, because what what was the next step? Because, you know, as you know better than I do, or at least as well as I do, it's one thing for people to express an interest. But what you've got to do is get them to open up their pocketbook and actually give you a buying intent. So how did you you validate that? Yeah, bingo. That was exactly our next. We're like, cool. It seems to be very good, strong interest. Random strangers asking for the URL, you know. So we got to get a a test website up that looks real, you know. And it's real enough to take their credit card. Right. And then, of course, uh, we're not going to fake it. We got to find a cow and, you know, find a farm and we've got to be able to ship the orders if we do sell a cow this way and, and figure that out. But if we don't sell the cow, you know, with this test, then you and I are going to buy that cow anyways, to be fair to the farm. And, and then we're, we're going to have to buy meat freezers and we're going to, you know, call it a day and we're done and we're going to have too much beef, but not a bad outcome either. So we decided to do it. We started uh, building the website prototype to look, you know, um, with credit card payments and all that. We're engineers. It's easy for us to do that a couple of weekends. And then we, uh, found farms. Um, we did our market research, went in, went to butcher stores, went online, started making phone calls. I got to tell you a lot of like, we're sorry, this voicemail has not been set up yet. You know, types of what we learned right away is like, wow, these farms are not online. You know, they're not, connected even the ones that go to the farmers markets aren't necessarily so it was a lot of like gee this is this is going to be hard uh to to reach these guys and, and there was a little bit of like early doubt around like will this will this idea of it if we're successful work because it's just so hard to find these farms how many of them are there it was a lot of lingering but it was like put all that aside let's try to do a test and we did a test and we sold out the first cow in the first 24 hours and we had the most exciting thing for us definitely was and we emailed about a hundred of our friends and sold the cow out. But the most important part was a lot of the friends had forwarded that email on to their friends. And so we had orders from total strangers that we didn't know personally. Mm-hmm. Either way. So we're like, wow, who's this Debbie person in Chicago? Like, huh. wow, you know, never that's amazing. Some random stranger has put their good hard-earned money on a website that didn't even exist 24 hours ago. That's awesome. So how much time was there after that? You sold the cow. You guys are really excited, both because you had a really fun test that happened. It's a fun thing. And you, and you get some meat out of it. I hope I hope you were at least one of the people that got some meat out of it. But yeah. how much time between then and the next stage where you said, okay, now let's, let's try to do this again? We had a um, – it took a good month just to – month, month and a half in my recollection just to get the first order shipped out because – we actually, you know, there, there's, um, that's beyond the slaughter, butcher and dry aging, right? Or slaughter, dry aging and butcher process. Then another full month just to figure out, okay, how the heck are we going to ship this in boxes to people and get it out there, right? In the mail. 
because we wanted to test uh, what is packaging and how do you get shipped and just a lot of learning and and we had to beg you know for like where are we going to pack the orders we tried to get the butcher to give us half an afternoon one day we we tried to pitch them on the idea that like hey maybe this could be a new business line for you we'll be the online guys and you can be the order fulfillment and butcher add to your business and together we can grow and then they you know it was a tiny little butcher and they the day of that we were supposed to go down and pack orders like the day before he was like uh one of my drivers just quit on me i gotta make a run to portland sorry guys you're out of luck and we're just like oh you're kidding me so we had to i had to call all my friends in town and and, do you know anybody who has like a warehouse space or something because i've got like 500 pounds of meat that's going to be dropped off tomorrow at 1 p.m and then i've got to get my wife and i to pack the orders uh i need a place to do that it was like crazy scramble um Hmm. (laughs) it was a fun took us a lot it took us many hours to pack 50 orders 55 so, like, yeah. so we kind of got a sense of what you were looking for when you started. I mean, you guys were a test and you, and you talked to some random people and some friends, but you know, now that you've been going for a while, what are you finding? I don't know what kind of market research you do. If you do surveys of your customers or whatever, but what are you finding that customers want from you guys that they're not able to get in another way? Yeah. The thing that we are able to give people that you literally can't get anywhere else is one place where you can access a multitude of small farms and you can buy it directly from the small farmer, literally to have the name of the farm on each pack of meat. No one else does that. You know? So, so you, so you actually, you actually preserve the branding, like when it goes to the, you know, so that when it goes to the USDA process, what you see that's, that's very common in this world, of course, is the fake farm sounding names, you know, and you see it even with the big guys, like 86% of the $100 billion beef market is controlled by four companies. And, they're, and they each have these fake sub-brands. And then you've got the regional guys and, and, and other smaller players that they create these far, Sunnyvale Farms or like all these crazy farm-sounding names, and they're not farms at all. And then they go off and source thoughtfully from whatever industrial broker they can find that has the low, lowest price that week. It's a commodity, wow. and ultimately it hurts the farms. Our point of view is like, I don't want to create a fake anything. Um, I'm a marketplace. I'm a brand that empowers consumers to have better decisions. I'm a movement. I'm an online store. I don't pretend to be a farm. I don't use stock art photography. I don't lean on marketing buzzwords or confusing labels. I don't use punitive certification programs and an attempt to narrow and squeeze producers. I'm not trying to source a narrow type of beef to get some kind of arbitrary consistency for some restaurant customer, I'm looking for the opposite. I want to find all the varieties and splendor of craft meat, small batch, small batches produced by people who actually care about the animals, how they're raised, how, how those animals have been raised, including what they've eaten, how they take care of their land, how they're continuing their own family tradition, how they support their own communities. I want to bring that connection to the real person behind it so that the dinnertime experience can be meaningful. Like when I'm eating beef with my kid, I'm like, yeah, let me tell you about this farmer. This farmer's in Bernie, Montana, and she raises 100% purebred Wagyu, but it's grass finished. So it's out there on hundreds of acres of green grass in Montana. And she leaves the horns on because that's more humane, she believes. And her land was, uh, came into her family from the Homestead Act. 
So, you know, she reached into her cabinet and showed me a piece of paper that had the president of the United States signature on it. And like, we're supporting her and her family's effort to continue that tradition. And along the way, she's fought off people who want to come in and mine the land, strip mine and run railroads through it and other things that would damage the ecosystem there. So like, I feel pretty good about eating her meat. And oh God, I know it's more delicious than anything you'd ever find in any store. Because Wagyu, the Kuroge Washi breed, is pretty dang unique and you can't find it anywhere. And a lot of the stuff when you see Wagyu on the menu is baked anyways. Hmm. We're going to get to, we'll get to that in a second. I want to, I want to go into that, but uh, you know, so it sounds to me like the fundamental value proposition that you have is that many people want to support local farmers, but it's just inconvenient. So CrowdCal makes it convenient for both the consumer and the farmer. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah. With a, you know, within a, an umbrella of higher quality than you can find other places tasting better, better for hmm. you. And then access to that variety, the discovery of like, wow, it's not a commodity is a big part of it that you, you step into. You may be finding us because you want to know that you're supporting a small farmer or you want access to higher quality, right? Then you step into our world and you realize, oh my gosh, there's these different varieties. And this is more like chocolate or wine or microbrew that like I can experience all these different things and it's fun. So there's a human connection, a transparency, and access to quality and variety you can't get anywhere else. Let's touch on uh, labeling and production standards for a second. Now, this would be very interesting um, to hear your evolution and thinking on this because you came into this brand new, as I did 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, of course, um, marketers are very good at obfuscating what anything means with grass-fed, grass-finished, grass-fed, and grain finish. I mean, if, unless you really know the farmer – these things don't tell you anything. They don't tell you what Correct. type of grass, what Nothing. breed of animal, what the animal husbandry protocol is. I mean, grass-fed, what I've learned from talking to people, grass-fed isn't what people think it is. I mean, you could see a sign. I see signs on the side of the road, you know, we have grass-fed beef. But they, I mean, they could be feeding moldy hay from low-protein perennial pastures, Absolutely. too, and it's still grass-fed. Absolutely. So. Yeah. When, you, when you started sourcing this beef, what did you learn and what did you find about that? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that. I was like, I, it, it, we wrote a book on on a lot of these topics called Craft Beef, actually. It's, it's available on Amazon. But um, to just because we were in situations as consumers going direct to the farms and learning first principles that we we're just getting smacked across the head with like epiphanies, like you're kidding me. I had no idea. Like, and I kind of represented at the time the typical consumer, right? Which is like, well, I kind of heard that grass-fed is healthier, so I'll buy that, you know. And then you go to the farm, and they're like, well, there are many kinds of grass, and you're like, really? Whoa! Tell me more. And um, what, our first farm visit ever, we're driving out there down one of these roads, and there was one of those signs that said "grass-fed beef" had a phone number on it. So we toured the farm, learned about. It. I asked her, saw that sign down the road. Is that yours? She goes, no. I go, well, great. We're looking for more grass-fed beef because, you know, we're going to be small farms, grass-fed beef, you know. So uh, can you introduce that farm, the other one? And she's like, I don't know that you want their beef. And I was like, why not? It's grass-fed, right? I'm just like typical dumb consumer at the time. And she's like, well, you got to understand, in the winter around here, the grass doesn't grow, you know. So you either, either have enough grass on your own that you can bale it up and, and feed it in the winter or you don't. And if you don't, you've got to buy it. And if you're buying it, you're either buying good stuff or you're not. And if the cows get skinny or they're not eating healthy stuff, they're not going to taste good. They're going to get all lean and funky tasting. And I'm like, wow, I'm just I'm blown away by that. First of all, like that's a lot of the reason why a lot of people will say, oh, grass doesn't taste as good or it tasted gamey. 
Well, if it came from that, it probably did. I, of course, with crowd cow, had so much grass-fed beef that's marbled and delicious. People go like, are you kidding me? This is grass-fed? Yeah, it's done right. It's incredibly delicious. And the breed matters too. It's you know how it metabolizes its food. Different breeds will taste different, different fat levels. Anyways, but I said, how do you know this? How do you know? I asked the farmer, how do you know that other farm doesn't buy grass? It's like, what do you know? You know, how do you know that? She's like, well, in this part, I'm the one selling grass. I have more land than any of the other farms around here. I have a surplus of grass. So I'm the one selling it to everybody and they're not buying, you know? So I was like, okay, that's interesting. You know, and that sort of helped us to start to develop a criteria of things to look for positive signals. Someone who's got a surplus of grass who's doing grass fed to the extent that they're selling it to other farms. It's a good signal. It's a positive. Another positive would be they've got a closed herd, right? They're specialists on a certain breed. That's a good sign. Another good sign would be they're carrying on their own family's tradition. Another good sign would be they've got conservation efforts with regard to the local ecology. Another good sign would be they do support their own community with volunteer work and efforts like that. Another good sign would be, et cetera, et cetera. They have a point of view on certification right. programs. Whether they're doing the certification program or they've chosen not to, they, they can tell you why. Because right. as you know, we can get into the certification uh, shenanigans. If you like, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it completely. And I, I agree with everything you just said. And what you just said, of course, is diametrically opposed to, uh, you know, the industrial uh, meat system. And I'd like to talk about that for just a second, you know, because even though it's a small minority of Americans, there are a lot of farmers and consumers who are increasingly disgusted with industrial farming and they, they just and they love to condemn it. Um, but, you know, listen, even some of those industrial farmers are themselves disgusted, but, but they feel trapped by the system. They're in these big contracts. And I'm wondering, given that you're someone that came from the outside into this world, how do you think we even got to this point of animals and meat being produced industrially? Well, I, my, my theory is that it started actually like way back, even, even towards like, I think it's heavily tied to the development of the logistics. It's a perishable product. And so when railroads came or refrigeration came, these different innovations allowed meat to be transported and distributed in more efficient ways. And so that changed the nature of how it was sold or where it came from or the pricing. And pricing is an almighty important thing in the consumer's mind, right? Low price, okay, get more of it. More, bigger, better, best, lower price mentality in this country. Now that was also driven, I think, by post-World War II I think there was, it was a very different time than we're in now, right? I think right now what consumers want is not that. But what got us here in part, I believe, was not anyone's fault. It's not like there's some evil entity that's trying to screw everybody. It was more, it came from probably, I'm a very positive, optimist person, right? I'm very open-minded. I think it came from, hey, we just got done with World War II. How can we get proteins? People need proteins. How can we get proteins to the masses cheaply? You know, right. that's very different than like, how can I have the best steak of my life with my buddies on Friday? And like, you know, the system that got us mass meat shipping shipped in from containers overseas and commodities slaughtered hundreds an hour for the low price, you know, high marbling because all they care about is the rating, you know, the marbling level. They don't care about flavor. That doesn't serve me when I'm like, I want the best meal with my buddies on Friday. Or what am I feeding my child, my family? What I want to feed my family, not only me, but consumers in America as a trend, is something that was connected to the farmer, 
and the farmer cared. That's craft meat. Mm. That's very different. Yeah, and that's definitely that definitely a growing t- trend. And you're real, I think, real well positioned to to not only capitalize on this. I kind of hate saying the word capitalize because that's got the wrong connotation. I, I I'm all for anything that connects people to where their food comes from because we've all abdicated that responsibility to yeah. large in, industrial pr- producers. So how how does your business work? Uh, what what are the technological and organizational challenges of working with multiple farmers and multiple butchers? Yeah, there are many. <laughs> you know, I think that's one one of the things that we have this unique offering. Well, it also means we've we are building. Uh, we're doing it in a completely different way than everyone too. Like we don't ever call a beef broker ever. We are one hundred percent from the individual farmers. Mm-hmm. No one has that, and we're putting their name on it. Like like I said, we're not a, a farm brand. We're a, a marketplace. We're a movement. We're a community, and so we want to shine the light on the on the producers. And and it, it's a very deep idea that we you know we could we could spend hours on. Like our philosophy is like I don't want to tell farmers what to do, and I don't want to tell consumers what to eat. Everybody else seems to want to do those two things. Everyone else, if you unpeel it, everybody's really all these certification programs, whatever, just trying to tell farmers what to do so they can get consistency or low price out of the farmers. So and, if uh, I can just stop there for a second, what you're really what what you're saying, I think, is you don't you don't mind necessarily whether you sell a product that's grass fed beef 100 percent or grain finished. You just want to make sure that you have complete transparency so that both parties can decide. I want to have complete transparency, and there are a few other factors in terms of the quality and ethics of it. You know, we're not buying from brokers, and that means we're not buying from concentrated feedlots ever or anything like that. So we've got grain finished but it's craft it's like yeah we grow our own peas and corn like our very first grain finished you know operation we went east washington and it's a dry climate and we had customers asking for it by the way we had customers who were like i love the idea of the farmer and the connection but like i like the flavor of grain finished is there something that can give me the best of both and we're like i don't know actually but we found this farm the very first one we worked with that was grain finished i remember going out with him and um and uh, asking him, like, well, why don't you do grass finished? Because you'll make more money, you know, it's a bigger trend. He's like, well, grass doesn't grow out here. And, uh, you know, here's the corn. He pointed over to the cornfields. He grows his own corn. I'm like, oh, so the corn is the grain. Like, I was so naive at the time. Like, yep, we grow that corn, we feed it to him. And I go, okay, that's really cool. We'd just been up on horseback to see these cattle uh, grazing up into this um, lowland uh, mountain land most gorgeous thing with fret rotating from fresh pasture to fresh pasture grass up in the hills and then they come down right and feed out with the corn so i'm like well where do they feed out like do you send them off to a feedlot or where's feed? no we don't send them off anywhere it's all here on the farm i go okay so where where do you feed them he's like right here we're we're in the feedlot right now joe <laughs> and i'm like <laughs> and i was like i'm just blown away i'm in a feedlot this is a feedlot you're kidding me you know, because the feedlots that we hear about or that we smell from miles away on the highway, the industrial feedlots are not what this is. This is not a feedlot. This is a, a place on the farm where they're caring for these animals and feeding them the corn they grew right there on the farm. And this was a fourth generation farm. It's been doing that way forever. And they do it that way because that's the environment that they're in. But I'm guessing. But I'm guessing he had no, he had no way probably to bring the finished product to market. So he was probably selling at sale barns or something. Yeah, I mean, where we're getting into Washington is so far from cattle country that actually these are pretty small scale, and they're not like 
feeding off into the industrial system at all. So he's making it work by, he was making it work by selling off in his local community. Like he powered beef in the local independent burger store. They actually had their own uh, grocery kind of uh, store plus meat counter, you know, where they would sell to this very rural place in Washington, a lot of their beef. And then beyond that, they were kind of struggling. Um, so we were like, I'd love to get this on our website and sell it and ship it off to like everybody in Washington. And, you know, and we're expanding to Portland soon and California. Now we're nationwide. So um, people all over the, up and down the West coast can enjoy their beef everywhere. Um, so, and so it's actually that- their beef, their beef actually to, to finish that story, their beef is one of the two farms that we use for Shake Shack here in Seattle for the Shake Shack signature burger. And it's incredibly good. Uh, so I was going to say, how does that work actually, you know, as someone who's run a farm before and I used to raise Murray, Murray Gray beef cattle and had a, you oh, know, great. a decent size herd of that. So let's say you came to me and I said, yeah, I've got some cows here I'd like to sell, you know, but I'm located far from you. How does that work logistically? Are you sending a truck and picking up? Is it going to a local? No, local. What, what all local, all local processor. It's super important for the quality of the beef and the treatment of the animals that you're not shipping them around. That's we're we're the guys who don't want to do that right like we 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 don't believe in that because again it's not like because the farmers told us if you want the best quality don't do that and the best farmers advocate against doing that so in this case with so in this case would the farmer take the cow or the cows the steers to a local usda processor or Correct. would okay. yeah so, in many so of our areas choosing... they'll have a local a cooperative slaughter mm-hmm. or a local usda slaughter or processor that's in their community that's small scale when the thing the great thing is when we come in and work together with them everything gets smoother because you know now we can move to like a standardized cut plan and we can coordinate out into the future and we've got plenty of demand where we can predict out how much we're going to be buying and it's a little smoother than it's sort of sort of operating week to week on the custom exempt customers and farmers markets and, and those sorts of things Hey, Small Farm Nation, ever wonder why some farms have a wait list of loyal customers while you work an off-farm job and struggle just to stay afloat? Well, the secret to having a thriving farm business isn't a secret at all. It's called marketing. Successful farms know that marketing is the first priority because without customers willing to pay the prices you require, your farm can't survive. But here's some exciting news if you struggle with farm marketing. Now you can become a farm marketing ninja just by joining smallfarmnationacademy.com. Small Farm Nation Academy is jam-packed with farm marketing video lessons, downloadable resources, mastermind calls with successful farmers, and a rich community forum. If you're struggling with your farm's website, you can even get a modern farm press website for your farm included for free if you'd like. And get this, if you'd like personal guidance specific to your farm business, you're in luck. Because SmallFarmNationAcademy.com members get one-to-one coaching from Tim Young, free, anytime. It's like having Tim as your on-call farm marketing mentor. By applying what you'll learn in Small Farm Nation Academy, you'll become the preferred brand in your market. So instead of struggling to find customers, customers will seek you out. Isn't it time that you made marketing the priority of your farm business? So head over to SmallFarmNationAcademy.com right now and get growing. Now, you've mentioned uh, craft meat a couple of times. What are you talking about there? Small batch, birth to harvest type thing, or what's your definition yeah. of craft meat? Yeah, yeah. Small batch, birth to harvest, high quality, specialized on a breed or a flavor or tradition, um, ethical standards that are high. That's what, that's what we mean by that. Heritage mm-hmm. breeds when you get into chicken and pork and, and, and things like this. 
You, you know, you know, uh, you know, in my experience, pork chops and steak are, you know, pretty easy to sell, but small farms often have trouble selling specific cuts, certain cuts, you know, particularly when you get into organs and things like that. So how does crowd cow partition and sell every cut from the animal so that nothing's wasted? Yeah. So in the beginning it was crowdfunded cow. So it literally wouldn't even, you know, the event wouldn't, wouldn't ship unless. Yeah. So the last guy in gets the liver. Yeah. You know, and there's, but the beauty of it is the beauty of the model is like, when you think about like, a farm in a rural community try to sell in their rural community how many people in that community want there's a one liver on every animal how many people want to buy it every time mm-hmm. you got you know so but when you widen out the geography and you think about uh online marketing and different even ethnicities right cow tongue uh, you know is a thing that's very treasured in you know korean barbecue and in, in uh, mexican cuisine and and like if you're from one of those communities and you go to your grocery store, if you're in Boise, Idaho, you know, and you want cow tongue for a party you're having, you know, and you're Hispanic, and that's your family's favorite recipe, you can't even find a tongue in the uh, grocery store. You know, Joe, uh, you know, related to that, I mean, uh, over the years, I mean, I've raised, like I said, Murray Gray beef, I raised Katahdin sheep, I've raised all kinds of turkeys and chickens and Osceball Island pigs and all these things. And to this day, if people ask me what's my most memorable farm meal that I've had, it was pig brains for breakfast. Oh, I mean, wow. and, I, and, I, and I would have never in my life eaten something like that until I started this. Right. But it's, yeah. you know, you have, but when you get it, my customers all bought the steaks and pork chops and that left us yeah. with the organs and things like that. And that's the yeah. good stuff. Yeah. I mean, my point of view is just with online, you definitely gain back an efficiency that you can reach more people who have, uh, and, and then you can also inspire people to try things. Like we send a lot of little emails and, and, and things like, Hey, I noticed you bought this. Why don't you try that? And we supplement with recipes and online inspiration. If we find people doing interesting stuff with the other cuts on social, we amplify that to inspire others to give it a try. So your, your site for a, a, a long time, I think, talked mainly about beef, but now you're saying craft meats. And um, I know now it says pasture chicken and pork and things like that. And in fact, yeah. one of the one of the farmers I talked to recently, uh, Greg Gunthorpe, I, I think was selling yeah. to you guys as well. That's right. So what, what, are your, what are your plans in, in that area in terms of expansion into other meats? Um, well, definitely beef, pork and chicken. You know, we are looking into lamb and some other things. I think we're going to be we have done. Uh, Copper River salmon, which is a very specialty uh, type of, of salmon, um, with a particular boat that we we know the the, the boat, the fishermen, um, and that's been very successful, and we like it. We're a little cautious on seafood, only because um, you know our 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 premise is always back to the source, high quality, traceability, access to the variety, and with seafood, the, the sad thing with seafood is, um, although there's an opportunity because there's so much confusion in seafood. With, over whether it's overfishing in the wild caught side or it's the antibiotics used in the farm side, consumers are confused and they want to make the right choices, but they're not empowered with information or choices to be able to make the right choices. Mm-hmm. And so it's a scary purchase to make. It's like, see if it's healthy, I should buy it, but I don't know if I'm contributing to something horrific. If you're buying salmon, we don't know where it came from. Chances are you're contributing to something horrific. And if you look carefully, Costco's adding orange food coloring to it. So like, I think there's a ton of opportunity for crowd cow and seafood, but I'm cautious because the fact of the matter is something like 25% of all seafood is illegally fished. So, you know, how do you source direct from the quote farm when there's no farm, there's a boat and the boats 200 miles out to sea, you know, and it's traded hands when it's, you know, so many times we, we like to be direct. I like the fact 
that I can look at all of our firms in the eye. We know them on a first name basis, you know, and we know the first name basis of everybody in the whole chain up to the guy putting it in the box to ship it to you. Um, that's important. So, you know, Joe, you're really starting this process of opening the consumer's eyes. I mean, what's happened, of course, is your eyes have really been widened the last few years. And now you've got consumers who are just used to going in and buying the, you know, whatever from the grocery, from the meat counter. And now they're seeing that not only are there real farmers out there, there's, there's very different types of animals. I mean, there's beef from different animals. There's pork from different animals. I mentioned that I've raised Ossoball. I've raised Berkshire pigs. I've raised large black pigs. I've raised Ossoball pigs. And I can tell you there's a humongous difference yeah. between the carcass quality and the, the, the taste experience yep. in those. I'm not going to say good or bad. There's a huge difference. So um, are, is that something that you see yourself not just offering pork, but making available these different breeds? Yes, yes, that's yes. That's 100% the whole vision. Absolutely. That's, that's it in a nutshell. You should know, you have the name of the farm in there, and you should know the breed, and you should be experienced, all the flavors. People already do this on crack all the time. They have tasting flights. We see it on social. Mm -hmm. uh, today, I'm tasting. If they buy something from different farms and different breeds, we'll point that out to them. In the email, we'll have a handwritten note in there, and it'll say, hey, we want you to know you've got two different breeds of beef and three different cuts. Why don't you test out the different flavors? be attuned to that it's fun it's exciting we want people to discover that because that's where it's that for me that was a huge discovery you know um how much better it can taste any any mm. pork for any of the breeds you mentioned raised responsibly well it's a shame you have to call it pork because anything called pork in the grocery store can't compare at all to it flavor wise right. chicken's right. yeah, the same I mean I mean, Ossoball pork would have three inches of back fat on it. I mean, it's the opposite of what you get in a grocery store. I took some beef down to Texas to a pretty famous uh, barbecue joint, and they were eating the raw fat. <laughs> they were like, this fat is incredible. They were eating it. They're like such beef geeks. You know, they were so into beef. They'd never seen anything like it. So right. the quality, right? And they were just like, this is marvelous. You know, these are people who are experts in Texas on barbecue, right? I, I can tell you firsthand that's true, Joe. I mean, I grew up for, you know, for whatever reason that, you know, you cut away the fat and the, the, you know, I haven't bought meat from a grocery store in 12 years now, you know, so when you grow these kind of animals and eat that, I mean, the fat is the best part of many yeah. of these dining experiences. Yeah. We have that's to, flavors. we have to warn people whenever we pick up a new team member at CrowdCat, we have to be like warning, you know, after you work here, you won't, you won't be able to order hamburgers outside mm -hmm. at restaurants anymore, anywhere except for Shake Shack in Seattle because yeah. they have iron beef. But, but you won't be able to do it because the, the, the idea that you spent 10 bucks on a hamburger and it's worth zero to you now because of the flavor's not there, you know, it's just throwing your money away. <laughs> so, so, you know, of course, you know, one of the, I mean, I love the story, of course, and you'd expect I would of what you're doing, but one of the downsides, when you go to the industrial meat machine, one of the things that they're good at doing is producing things that are fairly consistent. Um, and, and when you go to many different farmers and many different breeds, you're going to have things that um, are not, by definition, they're not consistent. So I don't want you taking a bite of my steak, Joe, before you send it to me. But do you guys have any uh, process where you taste or inspect the yeah. meat before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. We, we, don't, we never sell anything that we haven't spent a significant amount of time on the farm um, and that we haven't taste tested. Um, so we're getting samples all the time from different perspective farms. We meet a lot of farms and we work with very few. Um, and we taste test everything extensively. And there's seasonality involved too as well. So we monitor that also through the feedback from our customers. Um, so we ask them what they thought. We map all that data. We share the data back to the farm. So we can actually, we've noticed we've had 
uh, times where we're like, hey, the ratings here are going down. What's up, guys? And they'll go, oh, my gosh. We, you know, So they can make changes and do a better job on their side. So it's, it's a new that's approach. A, that's, a, that's a really good point because, I mean, uh, in my experience, a lot of farmers, when they sell their products, they never get any feedback and they don't know. So what kind of feedback are you giving to them? And let's take that example you just made. What would cause a farm's ratings uh, to go down? Would, was it be a feed change or something or what? Seasonality. Well, in the grass-fed, grass-finished world, it would be seasonality and the different uh, lower protein uh, dried grasses uh, towards the later, later part of the season. In fact, it can be, depending on the part of the country, that can be extremely severe, right? There are places where, you know, there's 12 feet of snow in the winter, right? So uh, you got to, if you're doing grass finished, uh, what's, we got to understand what's happening in the winter, right? And there's, uh, you know, places in Northern California, Southern California, where the grass is more consistent year round. So that, those, are, those things will cause differences absolutely throughout the year. So we've, we've kind of touched on many of the benefits to consumers of that, um, are, that are derived from a relationship with CrowdCow. We, you know, the benefits include they don't need to have an entire freezer. It's easier to buy. They know their food source, those kind of things. Um, yeah. what, are the benefits, what are the benefits to farmers you know, from having a partnered relationship with you guys? Yeah, number one is they're going to have access to a lot more consumers. Two is they're going to, you know, they've already got a full-time job. Um, you know, if they want to go direct to consumer farmers markets, it's a lot of overhead in terms of the marketing support, logistics, going out there every weekend instead of being with your family. And you're only accessing kind of the, the community that's going to that little farmers market. I used to, um, you know, my, one of my early epiphanies was, you know, at some, at our growth rate, you know, early on, I was like, we're going to have more customers in the neighborhood I live than the farmer's market in the neighborhood I live has customers simply because I know in the neighborhood I live on Saturday and Sunday when the farmer's market's open, people are busy. They've got to wash the car. They've got to take the kid to swim practice. They've got to run errands. They've got to go, shop, you know, different things. And, and then you got to drive to the farmer's market, find a parking spot. I'm just saying nothing wrong with farmer's markets, but it's a very limited market. It's inconvenient for both consumers and for farmers. I haven't met a farmer that likes a farmer's market. Well, I can tell you also from from somebody who, who has once sold um, meat there, you've got to pack up frozen meat. You've got to drive usually at yeah. least an hour or two to a farmer's market. And then what you don't sell, you got to pack up and bring back. And exactly. you've got, you got to have a freezer on your farm to put it in. Yeah, we saw lots of freezers full of really old meat and damaged meat because when it thaws and refreezes, that's not good for it. So, right. um, yeah, we had a lot of um, benefit for the farms. The farms that we are working with today that used to be in farmers markets are no longer in farmers markets. They're much happier with us. They're selling more beef. And then the final thing is they're getting credit for it. Like it's their name on the package. It's their name in the social media, in the email, on the website. Like that feels really good. And it's part of that bringing people together thing that I think is just fundamental and, and important. Yeah, so that I mean that to me that makes a lot of sense. So there's a number of benefits there to to small farmers. They get the branding. There's no need to travel to farmers markets or to delivery drops. There's no need to travel to meat processors because when you go to a meat processor, you've got to go twice. You've got to take it. It's got to be dry aged for two weeks. Then you got to pick it up. You got to bring it back to the farm. Put it in a mobile freezer. Right. There's no need to create. You don't have to. It takes away some of the pressure of creating a market since Crowd right. Cow is doing that for them. And yep. many farmers who do this are in very rural areas and they have trouble yep. accessing markets. That's so th those all make a lot of sense for farmers. But a minute ago, you said that, um, or I, I think I kind of inferred from what you said, that uh, you have more farms that want to join you than you have capacity for. So are you looking to add yeah. farmers or not? Um, we do. We do add farms periodically. What we're adding, though, is 
when we find exceptional quality or unique varieties, then we add um, and we experiment a lot there. And we've added significantly in the last year, a focus has been to add the other proteins. And so in that direction. Um, and then, of course, as we grow, we add more, um, uh, not just from our existing farms, but, but via new farms. But, you know, the ratio is pretty, you know, we have over a thousand farms kind of who signed up and filled out profiles who have expressed interest in working with us. And we only have only nearly 100 in the United States that we work with from about 22 states. Let's go back to the entrepreneur side and forget about the whole farming and the food side and which is what our values are. You know, we're both we're both kind of mission driven wanting to do that. But from the CEO side, is that gap of because of the demand side that you need more demand so you can bring on more farms? Or is it because you have you're basically putting in place a crowd cow protocol or standard and you don't have enough farms that are meeting your standards? Um, I would I would say it's a little bit of both. And then the third thing is logistics. You know, it, it's not, uh, you know, if it was selling uh, music downloads, then it'd be, it'd be easy to onboard a lot, right? Um, and we do want to protect the integrity of the brand and the marketplace with the super high, very selective standards for quality and taste. Um, but even... Even so, it's it's not theoretically possible to add a lot given the logistical. Over it. These are animals; they're not steaks, and you have to coordinate the whole supply chain to get them out to people. So that's a that's right. definitely a constraint uh, for sure. And then, of course, demand has to be in lockstep because, um, you know, we're partnered with our suppliers. Um, we win together. We want them to be really invested in us and the model and the mission and feel like they're investing together with us for the, the upside we both get out of it. Um, so we have to be selective about the partners because we have to be, we have to believe that they're good people who would believe in the ultimate mission as well. And, and that's another thing is not all the ones we've met with have that view. Not everyone is, you know, uh, sorry for, every, for everybody who's over the age of, uh, of 11, I hate to break it to you. We're not all, good people you know <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah, gotta, fair you, enough. Gotta, you gotta find people who are honest and work hard together and well, partnerships spent. work when you find people yeah part, there's a lot there's a lot of mutual benefits here you know if, uh, if if people recognize those mutual benefits but sometimes people want to dig in their heels and they don't recognize the mutual benefits yeah and there's shenanigans in the beef world not from the producers typically but so many shenanigans like we've seen you know so many mistruths and, and mislabeling and or just completely bonkers things, mainly coming from the industrialized uh, side of it, I think. But um, we're, we want farms to get it, to get like the value of like, yeah, transparency, I got nothing to hide. I want to be, uh, who value that connection, the deeper thing I, I mentioned, the transparency. That's really, that's really important. So in, in your model, let's say, let's say I'm a farmer and I'm raising Murray Gray beef uh, cattle and you take a look at them and you say, yeah, I'd really like to do this. Um, and I'm used to trying to sell it, sell it and set my own prices. How do, how do we set prices with you? How do you come to a price point? Do you, is it fixed per animal or do you negotiate that with each farm? Um, well, in terms of the, there's the pricing paid to the farm and there's the pricing on our website, both of which, you know, are, are variable, right? Um, we're not a, a a full like open unconstrained marketplace where you can just come in and set your own price and done and we'll just take a cut. We do have that model of a marketplace um, in some cases, but really you know, at the end of the day, we have a, a really good sense of what our demand is, what customers are looking for, how things might compare to other types, what things are more rare and special versus more, you know, common. And, and we use that data to influence how we're going to merchandise things and position it. So if you have something really, 
unique and special and rare, um, it will command a higher price on our site and, and we'll be willing to pay a little more for those types of things. On the other hand, there's the partner aspect, you know, depending on where people are and their availability to, to slaughter and the logistical cost once it's cut and wrapped and moving around and the overhead, we've got to make the business model work for both of us. So there's a negotiation which will influence uh, the, yeah. the pricing as well. Got it. Uh, from a, I'd like to talk about marketing for just a second, if you don't mind, uh, because part of what you're, what you have to do is what you know a, a lot of small farms try to do and and fail at and and, and kind of give up on, which is to go out and reach consumers that are unaware of the opportunity to buy from a small mm-hmm. farm uh, and to support them. So what are the marketing tactics that you're looking at that are going to help you to be successful? Yeah. I mean, we've invested a lot, obviously in our website content, uh, in our videos and emails and blog posts, information that helps customers um, have a deeper understanding of what they're getting to get kind of see beyond just the labels and the buzzwords and feel like they're getting more a high fidelity uh, in terms of their purchase and selection. That's a big component of it. Um, having a great customer experience right from the moment they order to the delivery emails to SMS that goes out before it ships to like weather alerts if there's a disruption with the with the delivery to like post order survey to like the out of box experience and written note. All of that stuff contributes to a customer experience where they're happy, they're they're informed, you know, it's delicious and they're going to come back again. All of that's important. And then importantly for the marketing and getting the word out is when all that happens, the content, merchandising, the great experience, we finally talk about it. They say, Oh my gosh, you've got to check this out. And, um, you know, overwhelmingly our customers have come to us because someone in the real world told them about it. I heard about you from this and that, or my, you know, we get emails like that all the time too, where it's like, well, I've been telling my foodie uncle about you guys and I finally just gave him a gift and he was blown away. Now he's going to be your customer too directly, all that kind of stuff. So it's really important to have uh, high quality, high standards, great user experience so that your customers can get the word out for you. And then we do of course, online advertising, um, you know, paid ads and search ads and things like this. Um, you know, to promote different things um, uh, on different channels online where people may be uh, looking for stuff. Yeah. You know, you talk, when you talk about a great customer experience, um, and you've also talked a lot about your commitment basically to um, sound ecological principles, and, and, you, and you show that by the type of farms that you try to, um, try to support. Mm-hmm. Tell me about, um, what, let's say I receive a crowd cow package in the mail. What, tell me about your pa- your commitment to packaging and what that looks like. Yeah, thanks for asking. We we recently just um, kind of versioned up our packaging. Actually, we just rolled out our, our latest version. Our latest version is 100% recyclable and biodegradable materials. So the important thing um, to note about that in terms of the biodegradable is uh, recently, if you've read in the New York Times. Uh, a lot of the countries, like we, we recycle, we have recyclable products as a country, right? It goes into recycling bins and you feel good about it as a consumer. But the um, the sad truth about that actually was a lot of the recyclables were actually getting shipped off, if you can believe it, in container ships to China to be recycled, right? China recently said, we don't want those anymore, which has caused them to go into landfills in America. So whether or not it was garbage, plastic or 100% recyclable, it's going in a landfill. And so a lot of the quote, eco-friendly insulation, the most important part of packaging insulation, how are you going to keep this perishable product cold? Um, there are there's styrofoam, which is not 
environmentally friendly, but a very good insulator. And also very inconvenient as a consumer to, to deal with in terms of disposal, but not environmentally a good story. Or there's a various eco-friendly packaging that are recyclable. But the problem is whether it's recyclable or not, if it's going on a landfill, who cares? So we've found and, and rolled out a 100% biodegradable insulation. It's made from a 100% non-GMO corn starch material. And it looks like a foam, but it's it, it, it's literally just a biodegradable uh, material. In fact, uh, we don't we don't advertise this, but you can eat it. I ate it. I, I said, yeah. <laughs> Joe, don't <laughs> Joe, don't advertise. <laughs> no, no, no. It tasted like breakfast cereal. It tasted exactly like a certain kind of puffed breakfast cereal that I've eaten in the past. Um, you know, and it will literally dissolve away in your kitchen sink. So you put it in your sink, run water over it, and it just dissolves away into the water. It's just corn material, just natural bio, you know, starch, corn starch, and it just goes right back into the into the earth where it came from. Perfect. Wow, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Hey, you know, you talked about, we talked about product extension earlier in the sense of you started with beef and you're looking at pork and poultry. You may look at lamb and you're basically looking at human uh, proteins to eat uh, for humans. But uh, what about, uh, have you thought about the idea of using bones or organs or miscellaneous cuts for grass-fed pet food or anything like that? We haven't really investigated that. You know, it's sort of on the list down of like other things we could probably do to optimize the business, I guess. We do sell the bones and people use it to make bone broth. And we do um, ship certain cuts to your earlier question off. We make beef jerky. And so we sell, you know, some of the bottom round, top round of beef jerky, which is, a, you know, a great way to use that cut. Um, so, so to answer your question, we don't, uh, well, we don't sell, and we do wholesale, like I said, to Shake Shack. We've got another, uh, a number of other deals on the way to sell some of the other beef into the food service world. Um, who want craft meat? And they want the farm story on the menu. So we're doing that as well, but we haven't done, I know that human grade dog food is a real thing. And I know people right. do feed a crowd cow to their pets because they're feeding even uh, A5 Wagyu to their pets. So. <laughs> you may be surprised at how many people we sold um, raw pastured meats to who wanted it just for the dog food. You, you might be surprised by that. Um, you yeah. know, so, but fundamentally, we I mean, we talk about meats. So, and, I, and of course, that's probably where you want to stay focused. Yeah. But really what you're doing is you're bringing refrigerated or frozen farm products yeah. to consumers. So yeah. what about adding farms to cheese or something like that? Uh, I don't know what the future may hold. You know, we're definitely focused on the natural proteins right now. Um, the sort of our, 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 our view is um, there's a certainly big enough opportunity with the meat drawer, so to speak. Um, the center of the meal, central to your health, um, big dollar markets in terms of you know, the disruption that we can hopefully bring with uh, you know, providing an alternate supply chain that goes direct from farms instead of the big industrialized thing. And so you know, cheese is interesting, but I think we've got a really good opportunity with just the, just the proteins. But we do pair salts and we do sell other things. To make, we want to make the customer experience as great as people demand it. Hmm. Okay. Hey, just a couple other questions. I've got a, I've got a bunch of foodie friends that often confuse Kobe and Wagyu beef. I mean, can you, in case one of them are listening, can you actually uh, compare those two uh, phrases that get thrown around a lot? Yeah. So Wagyu is just a word that means Japanese cow. In Japan, there are four breeds of cattle that are native to Japan. One of those breeds is called Kuroge Washu or black cow. That breed is genetically special. It metabolizes its food into the fat on the inside of the muscle as this fine-grained marbleized incredible it's unique in the animal in the livestock kingdom 
to do that fat inside like it does in that, in that incredible intensity. That one breed called Kuroge. Kobe beef mm-hmm. is a brand name for that breed when it's raised in Hyogo Prefecture near Kobe City in Japan. When it's raised there, and by farmers there who are paying into the Kobe Marketing Association and slaughterhouses and so forth, then and it reaches a certain level, A4 or A5 rating, that's the highest two ratings of marble quality, then it can be given the brand name Kobe beef. So in Japan, there are actually around 300 brands of beef, and it's different regions. So we actually, I went to Hyogo when I first got Japanese beef network farms. Because I said, I'm going to go figure out Kobe beef. Let's go. And I met with farms that supply for Kobe beef and went to the auction and the slaughterhouse. And I said, you know, what? tell me about this. this is how I learned about all this stuff. And I speak Japanese, by the way. We've made a lot easier. But um, learn about all this stuff. And then, um, but I said, well, what are all the other regions in Japan? They're like, where can I get other interesting, high quality? They're like, if you want, I mean, they were literally, they were pretty frank with me. They said, like, Kobe is famous, world famous, and it's expensive because of that. But what you really want is that breed and the rating A4 or A5. You know, that's the highest. But if you get that, you're getting kind of that quality. But like go down to Kagoshima where it's a temperate climate, much better for raising cattle. Those guys have been winning awards for the last several years. Go there. So I went there. um, And then they actually, beef from Kagoshima won this nationwide contest called the Wagyu Olympics last year after I went there, after I met them. They won the nationwide contest. They've been winning before that, but too. But it's better, like in, in every possible way. So we buy the A5 Kagoshima Kuroge Washu, which is higher rated than Kobe beef. That's what we offer on Crowd Cow. And then we have an olive-fed Wagyu, which is a specialty brand from Kagawa Prefecture, which is that same breed. Again, rated. Uh, we do A3, A4, and A5 of olive-fed Wagyu, but it's so niche. It's the, the cattle are raised, but they're fed pressed dried olive peels as part of their diet. And that, impar- wow. that imparts different flavor profiles and it boosts the oleic acid content of the fat. So you get a sweetness to it and a health property. The uh, omega-7 fatty acids are in much more abundant quantities, which is good for your arterial health, heart health. And, uh, but the flavor is incredible. So it's a melt-in-your-mouth experience with a sweet flavor you know, subtle kind of breathy aftertaste of like olive oil, kind of that deal. And it's, and it's very special. There's only 2000 animals total that are raised in that system in that one little tiny place in Japan. <laughs> and, and we, uh, we're able to get that beef out uh, for the first time ever to consumers in America. And uh, that's been real fun. Wow. Wow. What a, yeah. That's, that's a, that's a great product. <laughs> and I can imagine a lot of people wanting to have some, uh, some tasting plates for that. Uh, that'd be fantastic. I've got one more question for you that I was really curious about when I knew you were coming on the show. Um, and as seasoned entrepreneurs, we both know that you can't spearhead a startup without thinking about the end in mind. And that is the exit strategy. Now for farmers, exits ideally and often mean hopefully multi-generational transitions, but as much as CrowdCow plays in the farming world, it seems to me that it's still largely a tech company where exits are either acquisitions or IPOs. So given that you've taken on outside investment from, you know, Ashton Kutcher, Joe Montana and others, where do you want to see CrowdCow go from an exit event? Well, I first want to see CrowdCow become a scaled alternative to the commodity-based industrialized system that feeds us today. That's a scaled alternative to that. So we're 
many millions of people are able to enjoy this better quality craft meat that we've discovered at scale with many, many hundreds of producers involved in a marketplace that's thriving. And I think that that's the, that's the, that's the goal. It's the thing we're focused on building. And together, that's a very ambitious uh, thing to go after and build, but it's such an enormous opportunity of our lifetime that there'll be um, plenty of good uh, exits in terms of like the public markets and others uh, as we, as we, as we approach that. For me, the word exit, yeah, yeah. exit means exit, like stop, like quit, you know, right. and that's a failure case that I don't want to plan for, or we're planning for success in our mission, um, ultimately. So I, I get the other definition of exit is like, I need liquidity on my investment, you know? Um, well, the, well, well, the investors may need that. I mean, but you don't need to. I mean, exit very well could be an IPO that you're doing this forever. And even even your children play, your, play a role yeah. down the road. Yeah. And this kind yeah. of, it's, the, the reality is it's such a big opportunity of our lifetime. And, and there's precedent for it because in my lifetime, this transformation to craft, which we envision for meats, it already happened with coffee in our lifetime. It happened with beer in my lifetime. It's happening now with chocolate and cheese in our country. And these are not small, uh, unimportant categories of food. You know, these are multi-billion-dollar things. Beef alone is a hundred billion. We figure beef, chicken, pork, etc., is on the order of a magnitude of two hundred billion a year, just in the U.S. So, taking mm-hmm. any meaningful portion of that, a meaningful portion of that, as informed by what happened with coffee and beer, would be somewhere on the order of twenty-five percent to sixty percent of the market. So, do the math. There's a big big opportunity. Now, if we're successful in any magnitude against that, there'll be plenty of ways for investor liquidity to take place along the way, even without giving up the mission at all. That's our goal. Now, great answer. Joe, you've given Small Farm Nation a bunch of reasons, I believe, to try CrowdCow. But folks, here's one more. Head over to crowdcow.com slash smallfarm and you'll get $25 off your first order. Now, that's not bad, right? Whether you want to try pasture-raised chicken, Berkshire pork, or even some incredible A5 Wagyu beef, you can get it now for $25 off. Just go to crowdcow.com slash smallfarm. Joe, I want to thank you so much for sharing that offer, and thanks so much for being part of Small Farm Nation. Thank you, Tim. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Small Farm Nation. If your goal is to own a thriving farm business with loyal customers who gladly pay you the prices you deserve, check out smallfarmnationacademy.com. Small Farm Nation Academy includes hundreds of video and audio lessons, farm stock images, a community forum, business plan templates, and resources that will help you market and grow your farm business. Plus, you get a state-of-the-art farm press website free with your membership if you want one. And that includes hosting and email unlimited accounts. And get this, as a Small Farm Nation Academy member, you get personal one-to-one coaching from Tim, free anytime you'd like. Small Farm Nation Academy is like having Tim as your own personal farm marketing and business mentor on call, but at a fraction of the cost of in-person consulting. And Small Farm Nation Academy has a full, no questions asked, seven-day money-back guarantee. So there's zero risk to you. The time to start marketing and growing your farm business is now. If you're serious about having a profitable, thriving farm business, join smallfarmnationacademy.com today. If you enjoyed this show, please share the love by leaving a five-star rating and review on iTunes, and by introducing Small Farm nation to anyone interested in farming or local food. Thanks for your support. And until next time, thanks for being part of Small Farm Nation.